Yes. Yes, I hear you. Me too. <laughs> not necessary, though. <laughs> High praise, but not necessary. How about this? A human being pronouncement on the mysteries of life, the ones that wrap itself around our ordinary days, is something like a water spider pronouncing over the depths of the ocean. It's understandable, but it's kind of beginner's error, really. And I don't know about your education, but I certainly know mine was a war on mystery. That's how it was conducted. Like mystery was the problem, mystery was the gap, knowledge was the solution, more knowledge equals less mystery equals a better life for us all. My God, your God, somebody's God, come on now. How about this? Could it come to pass that we could be mystified and consider that being edified instead of being stymied? Maybe so. This was the beginning of a track titled Hippie Radio from Stephen Jenkinson and Gregory Hoskins' new double album, Rough Gods, Dark Roads. My name is Matthias Olsen, and I'm the host of the Campfire podcast. And yes, you will eventually get to hear the rest of the track, if you keep listening. Before we go anywhere, I'd like to point out that this episode of the Campfire podcast is brought to you by the film platform Campfire Stories. If you like this podcast, there's a really good chance you'll like some of the films of Campfire Stories. Films that inspire and invoke a regenerative future. One that we can be proud to hand over to coming generations. Campfire hyphenstories.org There should be a link for it in the show notes. If not, you're going to need a good memory or a pen. Campfire-stories.org Check it out. All right, back to the conversation at hand. As you may have guessed, given that this is now my third interview with Stephen Jenkinson in a relatively short time span, I consider his voice to be a deep inspiration for the current times. In this conversation, the entry point is the corona pandemic. But we'll also get to some other pretty interesting topics, including some phenomenon that made books fall off the shelves in my living room recently. Enjoy the show. Thank you so much, Stephen Jenkinson, for being on the show. You're very welcome. I should mention uh, at the top that this conversation is being recorded on April 6th of 2020 during what we assume is the beginning of the corona pandemic. Obviously, we don't know exactly how this thing will impact the future, but from this vantage point, it looks like it will alter the world in a profound way. We shall find out, I hope. Um, but I know that it has altered your plans. Uh, you were supposed to be on tour right now with the Knights of grief and mystery along with Gregory Hoskins and your band. Mm -hmm. Can you let us in on what's going on instead of you being on the road? Uh, I'm missing being on the road. That's what I'm doing instead of being there. No, I was, uh, Gregory and I are making a new record right now. Uh, We started recording it a couple of months ago in Mexico and uh, we're continuing now. And we were both listening to a particular piece, but communicating you know, by internet, because we're not in the same place. 
And I listened to it and I wrote him back and I said, whatever I said by way of praise. And I said, but the worst of it is it makes me want to perform it like tonight. That's how you don't want to sit on these things. Anyway, I mean, it's a small, it's no dilemma at all. Obviously, it's a, it's a wonderful affliction to have to wish that you could bring forward into your little corner of the world something you've been entrusted with. So instead of that, in addition to working out the 10,000 details of postponements and cancellations and people withholding the deposits that you gave in good faith and other people not doing that and virtually nobody asking for their money back, which is extraordinary, somehow people are voting for us. But God only knows, as you said, and I'm not sure even God knows, or even, even if knowledge is a godly thing anymore, you know, given the the wild and unwieldy thing that we've been entrusted with now. I guess the thing that arrests me most about these days is contemplating the near future likelihoods. And, and the one that most compels me and saddens me is when I hear the language of restitution or reconstitution of the old order that so many commentators are panting for in some fashion, that returning to a sense of normal is what the doctor ordered. It's, it's really astounding when you consider that it was that normal that people are, so many people are panting after that delivered us to this circumstance and delivered the world to the very temporary relief it's experiencing as a consequence of us hiding in our holes. That it's come to this, that the, the only way the world has a chance of getting on the other side of our consequences is when we're brought to our knees or to involuntary arrest. So I'm thinking about things like this, and I'm, I'm thinking that if we ever get the chance to do Nights of Grief and Mystery, Again, and that's not overly dramatic to say such a thing, but if we do, the show that I imagined is more a child of its time now than it was when I imagined it. Mm. I'm going to step out of the interview here for a moment. Maybe this is not a bad time to let you hear the rest of that track that I promised you at the beginning. For anyone interested in buying the full album, please visit orphanwisdom.org for more details. Okay, people, here we go. Hippie Radio from the album Dark Roads. And how about this one? It would appear to me that we have been made and graced and to a certain degree, let's say troubled, by the capacity to imagine eternity. But our imagining itself is tied to the coming and going of days. Now, you could consider that some kind of taunt. You could, or you could consider it some kind of assignment whereby you might get to make peace in your days with the ending of days and call that a mystery that has you in mind instead of proceeding without you. So, Mr. Lightman, I'm going to go right over here and I'll see ya. Mr. Lighten Man, I know he's up there. No mystery there, aren't there, you see? Beautiful thing. Friends, you can practice mystery. You can practice it. 
long as you don't demonize it and consider it to be a gap in your understanding, it becomes the rest of your understanding instead. That's not a bad deal. It's a good gig. And here's how you can practice. Oh, there's many ways to do it. But the one I'm thinking of would be known as radio. Of all things, how does it come to pass that a radio is our PhD in the mysteries of life? Well, if you've ever laid there in the middle of the night with a transistor radio under your pillow, trying to keep it real quiet so you don't get busted, dialing in Rangoon and Luxembourg and pirate radio and all other mysteries of life, well, you understand what I'm saying. There's something about radio that gives you all you need to know in order to be mystified by the ordinariness of days. And if you can pull that off, people will flock to your door, whether you want it or not. Well, I was uh, the death guy for a while and rather uh, notorious in this regard. So I got a mysterious invitation to appear at the local radio station and give forth on the dilemmas surrounding dying. They characterize it this way. What is it about dying that's so hard in our time? I consider that to be emphasis on the wrong syllable. And so I changed the whole operation. And I said, for the next two hours of the interview, I said, no, what is it about our time that makes dying so hard? And that's the way I proceeded. Now, the invitation was to a radio station. Like a fool, I was looking for a radio station. I lived way out in the countryside. You might think living in a city that the city's got the market cornered on weird. And that'd be understandable because I've been here for a day or so. I know what you mean. But I will say this. The country has got its own weird that the city can't even dream. I live out there and I'm here to tell you there's country weird galore. And one of the weirdnesses out there, you would know it well as hippie radio. Uh, hippie radio is strange days out in the middle of quote-unquote nowhere at all. And it's hippie radio that invited me to appear, you see. So like a fool, I'm looking for a radio station. But hippie radio don't need no radio station. What they need is somebody's house and a lot of illegal wiring coming out of the house. Which they figured out. And so I finally caught on to what was going on. I started looking for a lot of illegal wire coming out of the house and I found it. Knocked on the door, said, come on in, we've been waiting for you. Lord, I walked in the kitchen which turned out to be the studio. And I looked up and there's egg carton stapled to the ceiling. I knew I was there. Sound attenuation for hippie radio. Egg cartons stapled to the ceiling. So I took my place and he took his place and he swung the mic boom out of the closet wherever he got it from and it hung between us and he leaned in real close. And he took the spliff out of his mouth and he said, because hippie radio, right? And they're only broadcasting to 17 people anyway, and the 17 people are doing the same thing, so happy days. So he said to me, tell me, I've been studying up on you pretty carefully, and it seems to me you know how to slow down time. Would that be true? He said. Now, friends, if anybody ever asks you that, I'm your temporary but rather intense spiritual advisor this evening. I'm here to say, just say no. So I said, why don't we go on to the subject at hand, the one you asked me to come to. I dug in and I started to talk. It was an hour and 47 minutes into the two hours and I'd done pretty well. For he had asked me to bring five songs along with me to fill in the gaps when I ran out of juice or gas or, or give a shit or something. We hadn't played one song yet. 15 minutes left to go. 
So he said to me, could you choose one? I said, yeah, okay. And so I had him play a Tuvan song, a Mongolian song, with horse head fiddle playing and overtone throat singing and, and that's all, nothing else. And it was a sound that was made because of the longing for a long gone friend. Or maybe, maybe it was the goneness itself. You know, there is something about radio that's so precious to us and it seems overlooked. And this is what it is. When they play a song and those last notes hung in the air as they do and there's no visual, you get to inhabit that quiet in a way that you can't when there's sound. And if you think about it at all, it'll hit you that that silence at the end of the song turns out not to be the end of the song. It turns out to be the rest of the song, the part that the singer and the recording people and the label and everybody else lost track of or didn't remember or couldn't hear. But it's there in that quiet just afterwards. And he played that song. And when it stopped, for some reason, he let that quiet sit there. And I did too. And it hit me in that moment as it had never done before. Do you know, that must be how it is when we die. We stop making sound and we stop wishing we could and then, and then we stop. And that silence that's there after we stop turns out not to be our elimination from the scene or our disappearance or even our demise. That silence is as full as anything that we were able to come up with when we were healthy and we were well. It's the rest of the story, not the end. Mystery and grief. So the silence hung in the air and that young man looked at me genuinely perplexed for the first time. And he said, why did you want us to play that one? Well, this is what I said to him. Imagine that you had lived your life in such a way that upon your departure from among us, someone who knew you was moved so deeply by your ending and by your goneness that they made that kind of music. Imagine that someone who didn't know you overheard a sound that could only have come into this world because you left it. And that person hearing that sound, well, it made them want to live even more deeply. Though they were sitting ever so deeply in the midst of their life, even so. You see, I said, I wanted the people listening, all 17 of them, to know what their life could sound like after they die how that all could be, for that is how it all could be.
All right. Um, jumping into the interview, uh, in your work, I sense a longing for a time when things were different, or perhaps a time when things will be different, a time when we're no longer orphans, when we know our place to be in nature and not as lords over nature. And you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong about this longing being part of your work, but at least the longing that I sense in your books and texts is part of what's attracted me to your work. Mm -hmm. I've always since childhood felt that humans are lost somehow, that we emphasize the wrong things and that we're spiraling steadily in the wrong direction. This has led me to feel despair and to feel that, well, I'm just one person and what am I going to do to change it? But something has shifted in me over the last few years and it's partly due to your texts, partly due to the work of the writer Charles Eisenstein and partly, well, probably just that I was ready for that shift to happen. I now find myself looking for clues for what the beginnings of a path towards human sanity and ecological balance would look like. Not necessarily so that I may create a change in the now, but rather so that the rings on the water or in the time space, if you will, can make future generations look back upon this time with something like gratitude rather than contempt. In our last conversation, I asked you to help me identify any such clues. And you answered that we must first slow down the momentum of the current multiple paths of madness before we begin searching for and treading on any new path, even if it's a path towards sanity. Mm. It seems to me that the current corona pandemic is helping us in that regard. It's obviously having multiple effects on society, but one very palpable one is that it's forced many of us to slow down to stay home, to spend more time with family if we're lucky, to read a book, to breathe, to look out the window. And it's probably part of the old hurried ways to already now be searching for clues for what to do next. But still, I'd like to take this opportunity to ask you what you see as any possible steps of how we can begin to imagine a path towards sanity. Mm. Well, Imagining there's a path towards sanity might be a sane act, might be. It's not a bad move to make, but I guess the thing I'm, I'm pleading for ongoingly now is the recognition of what has come to us. The recognition, the word means to know again. Yeah, re cognitio, to know again. A kind of second order awareness that's not at the level of information or even at the level of certainty, but has a subtler consequence of, of arousal that doesn't reassure, that puts you on notice without being overly clear about what it is you're supposed to be noticing. All of that comes to this for me, that this coronavirus is a God. Doesn't come from God, that's not what I mean. And I'm not saying this as a monotheist, so let me issue a couple of caveats. If I were a monotheist, then I would say the coronavirus is in charge. I'm not saying that at all. And the coronavirus would appear to me to have no real consciousness and certainly no interest in world dom domination, unlike a lot of other politicians. So 
the coronavirus is a naturally occurring event. Understanding that the word natural now has to undergo some severe modification. Here's what I mean by that. Now, epidemiologically, uh, many, many people feel satisfied that they know, quote, where this virus came from. You might have the information, but you might not have the reason. So let's trace it back. It's very clear now, of course, that it comes from China. Not just anywhere in China, but a specific city in a specific province, traced even to a specific market, a specific area of the market called a wet market. If you stop there, you don't know why, and you barely know how, and you know virtually nothing of if. So in this wet market, it's quite well known now, and it may still be true for all I know, that what they had is domestic animals in cages for sale for food in very close proximity, sometimes right underneath or right on top of another cage, holding, uh, enslaving uh, a wild animal hmm. that had been dragged in from the bush or wherever. And we know now, of course, that the virus leapt from the wild animal to the domesticated animal and subsequently to the handler of that animal and subsequently to the person who consumed the food. Hmm. And off we go. But there's no why in any of this. There's just mechanics. So the, I'd suggest the why goes something like this. It's that proximity of the wild to the domesticated that is the principal transgression, the consequences of which we are now living. Hmm. The transgression is that the wild is supposed to remain wild. What little of it is left is supposed to be, by its own understanding of itself, wild, you see. And, and surely we've realized by now that the wild retreats at our approach. The wild doesn't, doesn't do a kind of standoff, you know, and just stand there with its fists clenched, ready to duke it out with humans. <laughs> the wild uh, regresses, the wild retreats. And, uh, and why? Well, partly we're... We're not that good at being close to the wild. That, that is more than clear. But maybe there's another reason. Maybe the wild is doing what it can to protect us from it by retreating every time we exercise another incursion into it. Knowing full well that there are things in the wild that we could not manage, you see. And this is the biochemical aspect of a bigger mythic and poetic understanding that the volatility of the wild is not something humans can manage. It's not something we know how to live. Uh, very, very few of us in human history have ever had enough understanding of the wild to be able to live, you know, all the Tarzan movies aside, been able to live more or less in its presence according to its nature and an obedience to its ways of being itself. Mm. And so... You know, in the quest for ever more virile, more, more upright and more long-lasting kinds of forms of life, as humans continue to violate the limits that are entrusted to us, that keep us, frankly, volatile and, and capable and upright. Mm. When we violate the limits, we find out that there are consequences that emanate from that, that we're not in charge of, 
that we don't seem to know how to even fess up to. This is the great lament from my point of view is, is the wild is murmuring its song and we insist on singing that instead of hearing it. And our way of singing it is to draw too close and the infection that ensues, which now apparently is going to be with us for some considerable period of time, uh, is, is unnerving, I would hope, even the best of us, mm. even the most prescient. Mm. So if the vo virus is a god, which I claim that it is, then I'm obviously not saying it's a benign or beneficent God. Neither am I saying that it's a vengeful or punitive God. The principal vocabulary of deity is consequence, not punishment, mm. consequence, traceable consequence. This is why we're not left out. You see, we, can, we actually have a nose as human beings for consequence, and we can trace it, as I just tried to do in a offhanded way to you just now. So, so what's the principal demeanor that we might adopt in the presence of this God? My answer, for, try to lose the language of opposition and antagonism and instead engage a language that's something closer to hospitality. That is, it might be, fall upon us now to exercise the particularly radical kind of hospitality that is necessary to contend well with having a God in your house. That means you learn the language of the God, you learn the ways of the God, you learn the food and, and the, the manner of, of maintenance and, and uh, sustenance that the God requires and proceeds with and see if we can play our part. And if we're willing to learn the ways of this particular God, we might learn this mythic and poetic layer of it that means us no harm, but clearly at some level means us. Mm. Thank you. Mm. The current crisis that we're facing is uh, severely altering the world for a lot of people around the globe. Um, Many find themselves without an income suddenly or with their businesses in, in shadows. Mm. And all of those death numbers that we see on the screen, uh, on the news, each one of them is somebody's grandmother, somebody's brother or somebody's child. But there's always different perspectives to any given situation. And this one, it seems, is no different. Um, one might take a guess that now... I have no numbers or anything to back this up, so this is more of a philosophical exercise, but one might imagine that the better air quality, for example, that's resulting from business as usual grinding to a halt mm -hmm. could result in more people's lives actually being saved than the amount of people who will end up dying from the virus. Mm -hmm. So will, with that kind of zoomed out perspective in mind, what do you think the corona... I mean, you sort of already answered this, mm -hmm. but uh, I'll give you a second crack at it. Uh, Okay. Because why not? What do you think the corona pandemic actually is? Do you think there's something like an intelligence to it? No, as I said earlier, I, I'm, that seems to me at some level a kind of conspiracy theory dilemma. It doesn't have to have a consciousness. It has its own nature, clearly. 
its own way of being itself. It's remarkably good at it. And it's a real survivor. So those things are, in other life forms, terrifically admirable. And we find those things admirable even to the point when we would want to imitate some of those qualities. But when it, when it uh, seems to have it in for us, well, then we demonize exactly the same qualities. So I think it, it clearly just has a nature, you know, it has a way of being itself and, and we demonize it at our considerable peril, to be honest. If you listen to the lunatic who's in charge of the United States, I mean, I'm not recommending that anyone do so. <laughs> but it is remarkable, yet again, you know, for ever higher, high watermarks of lunacy come out of that guy. But, the, but if you listen to how he, he, in a sophomoric way, characterizes the virus, he, he personifies it. Mm -hmm. And it's forever, he uses darkening imagery, right? It's almost medieval. Mm. <laughs> frankly, and, and so deeply uninformed that it's breathtaking if it weren't so terrifying, if it weren't so comedic, I mean, all at once. So, it's we're the ones with the consciousness, if you will, you know. And, and if that's true, uh, it doesn't appear to be doing us a tremendous amount of good from one generation to the next. Mm. So I'm not sure that attributing consciousness to other life forms is inherently a respectful or considerate or even admiring thing to do. I, I would say, why don't we keep consciousness to ourselves as a particularly human attribute mm. and not wish it upon any other life form <laughs> and see if we can inhabit the conscious long enough to learn the life ways of other things that don't have to have anything like a similar consciousness in order to be in the same world with us. Hmm. <laughs> I love how you always find... Yeah, I mean, I, I brought up one alternate view of this thing and, and you, I love how you twist that around and turn it into something else entirely. Hmm. Um, all right, I'm going to step away from the coronavirus temporarily. Do not, Good luck. do not fret, we'll be back soon. <laughs> But I'll go to another okay. cheerful topic um, and address another plague of the modern era, which is cancer. Uh. Um, in your work as a palliative caregiver, if you'll excuse me using the brochure name for it, mm -hmm. you've guided hundreds of people through their dying times. And I'm going to guess that a good portion of them were dying from cancer in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Now... We can look up cancer online and find out many things about how it operates and what the symptoms are, etc. But it's harder to find out what actually causes it, presumably mm -hmm. because there are many colluding factors and because, well, because we just don't know for sure. But what would you say this thing is when one part of an organism rebels against its own host? What is your understanding of where cancer comes from and, and what it is? It's... I think it's hauntingly similar to the characterization I just gave you about the coronavirus, to be honest. It would appear that, I mean, this is, this is one amateur to another now, talking about cancer, mm, right? Yeah. So with that caveat in mind, it seems to me that cancer is a consequence and not a cause. And so to talk in terms of ultimate cause, single cause, the root cause... Mm is the root cause of so many of our dilemmas, 
to be frank. And it, it's, it's just deeply unedifying to imagine that you can come down to a root cause because the next step, of course, is to eliminate the root cause and, and the, the dream that ensues from that is now you've obliterated the thing in question. But, but cancer is a kind of consequence, you know, it's a kind of almost by the way or besides the point consequence of a couple of things. One is probably living contrary to the, to the basic chemistry and physics and biology that were entrusted to you in myriad ways that humans find to do that. Compromising our capacity to contend with uh, the microbial world, right? Uh, it's it seems to be a, not unlike AIDS. It seems to be a bit a, a kind of breakdown which has a, a threshold and then a very widening uh, way in a breakdown of our capacity to do what otherwise we seem to do with no effort whatsoever, which is simply to live cheek by jowl with other life forms that would be interested in employing us as a host for their life, but we're able to, you know, to live close enough to them where that doesn't uh, occur to our ultimate detriment. So over and above all of that, there's, a, there's always, a, for a, a human point of view, a mythic and poetic uh, calibration to the understanding. I think it's mandatory to continue to bring that in. In this case, it might be this. Cancer is, has remarkable, remarkable capacity to further itself by undoing what it relies upon. And so you could say that the real world or the, the, the overt world's best manifestation of corporeal cancer is the suburb. And here's what I'm thinking. The suburb, by definition, draws the life force from downtown out to the outskirts. Right? And as it does so, of course, the downtown begins to wither. It would appear that the suburb proliferates as a consequence and benefits. But if you watch suburbs carefully over the course of a generation or two, it's very clear that they have an addiction. And their principal addiction is to growth for its own sake. And that's what cancer is. Cancer is growth untethered to the consequences of growth. And you can see it in a suburb. And you can see it in a cancer patient, virtually the same array of symptoms, that it's growing itself to death. Hmm. And in that sense, you could say that both cancer and the suburbs, they're by definition sociopathic, which is to say, not that they're crazy, but that they have a single-minded devotedness to their own way of living that doesn't take into consideration the kind of tertiary consequences for them being so successful at pursuing their course. Now, if you saw a little kid behaving this way, you'd gently encourage them to consider other people <laughs> or to consider the sandbox that they're playing in or, or the dog that they're mistreating or whatever it is. Mm. When, I mean, how do you counsel a suburb to slow down and finally to stop? Because it, demonstrating to them that they're killing the city that they're on the outside of has no consequence for their business model. Mm. 
or their, their business plan. None at all. Uh, that's considered success, you see. So I think, uh, alas, cancer can be, is recognizable in the suburb and vice versa. And growth, the mania for growth for its own sake, might be our signal affliction, the way by which we will be remembered in time to come as people who grew themselves towards their own undoing, towards their own madnesses. You mentioned growth, and it made me think of economy, mm -hmm. uh, which it seems that the the current financial system that is um, interest-based seems to have, when you described cancer, it just seemed like there was a parallel to the economy. Mm -hmm. But it seems with all the... the countries and businesses and, and uh, hotels and restaurants and so many layers of so many societies are um, are being financially undone by this corona virus. Uh, so it seems to me, I mean, I'm a total uh, amateur when it comes to state finances and, and economics, but it seems to me inevitable that that this will, um, that the, the, <laughs> the cancer, if you will, of interest-based economics will undo itself. Now, I don't know if you agree that you think that the, the world economy will collapse, but let's pretend that it will. And what would you imagine could come next to replace it? Or, mm -hmm. or I know you're not like a cheerful silver lining type guy necessarily, but at least I have some ideas of positive outcomes. But, uh, but the birthing process will be difficult. But how, how do you, what do you think about the, the world economy, its state and how it will look in a few years after this whole thing is blowing over? Mm. Oh boy, there's a lot of things to refer. Okay, the first one is, I think I am a cheerful guy, but I'm not a silver <laughs> lining guy. Okay. So that's very concerning that I set the record straight on that matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just don't need the silver lining to be there in order to obtain cheer. <laughs> that's the first thing. The second thing is, it's not the coronavirus that's undoing local or national economies. That's an easy thing to say. With all due respect, it's a lazy thing to say. And it, it re-inhabits this notion that we're personifying this virus as being inherently um, uh, punitive and, and you know, of grim consequence and so on, when it's simply doing the only thing it knows how to do. Okay, it's the nature of global economy that's having the consequence that it's having. Hmm. But that's where it comes from. The, the consequences that are emanating from the involuntary arrest of the current regime, those consequences are determined a priori by the current regime. There was only one way that this son of a bitch was going to slow down, <laughs> and that was involuntarily. Yeah. Okay. So whether it was the virus, whether it was a, a another radiation leak, what, whatever it might have been, but it's this. Okay. So and it really doesn't matter to to get particular on on the occasion. What this has done, it seems, like you, I'm an absolute neophyte in the realms of economics. So don't listen to me. That's the caveat. And having established that, anybody who's continuing to listen is well advised not to base any investment strategy for the near future <laughs> on what I'm about to say. Right. 
I have no strategy for investment, I should say myself. Um, I, don't, I don't know if this is the big one. You know, capital T, capital B. I don't know. Was the big one going to start off subtly in one particular locale and then creep along the, uh, the tendrils of globalization until it became itself a globalized thing? More than likely, it's, you can see that the, the tale told makes that make a lot of sense. Um, you know, the, the water, they tell us that the water is running clear in the canals of Venice for the first time in quite a while. That there's porpoises in places and dolphins that nobody's seen them in their lifetime. Mm. It's amazing from that point of view how little it takes for the world to re-inhabit the place that we've banished it from. Mm. All it takes apparently, and this is absolutely heartbreaking to say aloud, all it takes is our defeat. What do you call defeat if you decide upon it? Do you call it suicide? Do you call it right thinking? Do you call it coming to your senses or someone else's senses? See, we did, it, it was left up to us, wasn't it? it? Clearly it was left up to us. It, it had been left up to us for a good long time as the beginnings of the signs started to come in and people started to do the math in the 70s and, or so about you know, exponential growth and increase unchecked is going to have exponential consequence that's going to unspool uh, in, a, in a way that nobody can plot or keep ahead of, just like this virus. So, you know, sad but true, we had a choice. It was either we were going to be uh, defeated or we were going to be persuaded. It would appear that we chose by virtue of not choosing, we chose. And the path we've chosen for ourselves is defeat. That's, I think, where we stand at the moment, bewildered as the beginnings of the ash begins to rain down from a fire that we didn't know was burning, that we mistook for a naturally occurring thing. And we're, you know, somewhat bewildered and, and tempted to, be, to personalize this thing to an almost agonized degree of what does it mean for me, what's it doing for me, how it's affecting my particular job, and so on. Mm. The addiction to absolutely predictable ways of life, which includes the manic insistence upon regular job you know, availability, uh, which produces the kind of leaders that the United States has where they just trade on people's manic habitual insistence on nothing fundamentally changing for them except incremental improvement for them. Mm. And you can get elected routinely through the election cycle by appealing to that kind of thing instead of saying, wait a second, your insistence on your daily bread as you've come to understand it is one of the reasons we are where we are. Mm. So we have responsibilities as citizens of an alleged free country to proceed otherwise while we can still choose to proceed otherwise. If those habits are not broken, mm. recognized and broken at the same time, what inevitably happens, it seems to me, is a restoration of the habit and the typification of that as 
things recovering or getting back to normal or, or you know, God having his way or whatever you want to say. And this is my greatest concern in a field of concerns. This is probably my greatest one, that we will not take this thing to heart deeply enough to become the generation that decided to proceed otherwise. And people are going to get elected in the wake of this by promising a restoration of how it was in the good old days. Mm. Sounds a lot like Russia, no? <laughs> that's how you, well, nobody gets elected in Russia now, of course, but that's how you do, did get elected in Russia is to remind people of how great it was in Stalin's time and how great it was, you know, before the great undoing. And, you know, that's not unique to Russia. Or, or to any totalitarian state. That seems to be how you get elected in the United States of America also. Okay, for example, yeah. So, and I don't mean, I should say, I don't mean to cast, and I shouldn't cast aspersions in the direction of particular countries and so on. Because, I, I mean, on a good day, most people are trying to figure out how to put one foot in front of the other, I guess. And we just have the great misfortune of inhabiting a time where enough of us trying to put one foot in front of the other has begun to undermine the capacity of the world to sustain us. That's our particular misfortune. And if that's true, and it seems to be, then it seems to me the spirit work that accrues to the generations that are alive right now has to do with being willing to know that we are the beneficiaries of something we did not put into motion. And what benefits us in the painfully short term undoes everything that we had a kind of reciprocal covenant with. Hmm. Oh, every time you finish, it just feels like I would just want to sit in silence for like five minutes mm -hmm. and take all of that in. And it just feels rude to like jump to the next question. It feels like uh, mm -hmm. unnecessarily chipper, but um, <laughs> I guess there's a format to this thing, so I'll stick to it. <laughs> okay. Thank you, though, for that answer. We can rely on people pressing pause. Yeah. No problem. No, no problem. This program no. brought to you by the pause button. Press it. The pause button. Look out the window <laughs> and then come back. <laughs> Or not. Or not, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so I was listening to the news the other day and... Uh-oh. This isn't going to go well, this question, I can tell already. <laughs> I try to limit it, but it's there and it's, I recognize its addictive qualities, but uh, mm. still. Um, but so I was listening and I heard that as the intensive care units at hospitals begin to fill up here in my country, uh, mm. some of us may have to be prepared to give care to a dying relative at home. Right. This is what they were talking about. Um And now this was precisely your job description for many years when you were working with palliative care. Yes, exactly. And caring for someone who's dying, I presume, is a skill that humans, genetically speaking, are really good at. Up until as recently as six or seven decades ago, this was common practice, at least in my country. Mm -hmm. But still, I imagine it's not an easy skill to remember across those three or four generations when the job largely has been handed over to the experts, to the quote-unquote experts. Mm -hmm. um, but what words of... I think, you know, in fairness, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I think it's it's fair and uncynical to take the quotation marks off the word expert. Mm. 
I mean, those are the very same people that we're relying upon right now in the ERs and, and, and in the hospitals across the world, you know. Mm. In f- I don't mean to bust you on that point, but I, I know the temptation to call into question the notion of expertise, especially when it's been twisted and turned into things that serve big pharma and all. I, I get it. I really do. I was there. Mm. But for all of that, this, this objection that I'm raising comes from being there. Mm. And it's, it, I'm, I'm not unnecessarily or arbitrarily elevating medical professionals or, or healthcare professionals. I'm just saying, you know, they're in a system that's bigger than them. And, uh, and they're unnecessarily lionized and uh, made heroes. And that shouldn't be happening now. And they should resist any temptation to be characterized that way. Mm. But the stuff's very tempting nonetheless. So I think you could say that without the quotations. There are, there are professionals. So, so we'll leave the quotation marks off. There you go. But um, what words of guidance might you offer to someone who's suddenly been thrust into the acute situation of caring at home for a dying family member? Mm. Well, there's so many challenges to the, that are buried in the question. Here's the first one that occurs to me. Um, the acknowledgement, the easy acknowledgement that this is a dying person that you have in your house. I can tell you from being in that circumstance many times that it was not a given that anybody who was involved knew they had a, quote, dying person in their house. Mm. And that would include the dying person, you see? Because it's the nature of the treatment regime and the kind of psychosocial weather pattern that goes along with it to forever call into question the, quote, finality of the diagnosis. Mm. And that this apparently is a life-affirming, positive orientation. So I don't suspect that this is going to change overly when people start being told, look, there's no room in this hospital for this person, even though you're, they are your loved one, it changes nothing at all. Mm. So there's the first thing, that people are going to have to decide they have a dying person in their house. And of course, as soon as I say that, there are people listening who are going to say, you mean give up on them? No, not give up on them. Give up on the idea that you don't have a dying person in your house. That's what you have to give up on. Mm. Because if you don't, then then everything that you're asking me to comment on will never kick in. Because, you know, there is something that ensues from the acknowledgement that the person in question is a dying person that informs your approach to them. See, it articulates your approach, the purpose of your approach, why you're doing and saying what you're doing. Uh, You know, in the old days, I used to characterize my gig as um, having the obligation to proceed with the dying person as if what's happening is happening. Hmm. As banal as that might sound to you, it was a superhuman characterization for me to arrive at. Because so few people were willing to do it, you see. Hmm. Because the rah-rah brigade, the cheerleading brigade, was forever taking the position that as long as you held out hope, etc., then this person, by definition, by the kind of magic incantation of hope, is not necessarily dying. Hmm. So what, what does this mean? If you don't die of this thing now, you'll die of something later. Just say it. Just say the rest of the sentence, right? 
And it's very clear that the virus that you're asking me about is a lethal proposition. I mean, it has a particular fondness for people of my age mm. and my pulmonary disposition. Mm. If this thing got anywhere close to me, I'd be dead in two or three days. Mm. If, if I had that long. So I, I, you know, I live quite clear about that even now. Okay, so so what would how would people proceed? Well, if they knew and agreed that they had a dying person in their house, then it's the dying that comes first. Because the dying has replaced the person that you once knew. Hmm. That dying person is not the same person who raised you if they're your parent, who you argued with if they're your sibling. Uh, who you uh, made love with if they're your spouse. Mm. It's not the same person mm. because you never made love to a dying person before. I mean, I'll go out on a limb here, but <laughs> and that's, that's an eerie thing even to say out loud, yeah. just to imagine such a thing because uh, lovemaking is supposed to be such a life-affirming thing. Well, it's, it's many things, right? And it's not inherently anything. <laughs> and, and it belongs, you know, eros, thanatos, there's no question that they belong together and they, they seek each other out in some mysterious way. Mm. A little example. I was sitting in a team meeting years ago. I haven't thought about this in a long time. And one of the nurses was recalling how a few days before when she was at a home visit to a dying person who was an older man, that this man reached out and touched her, quote unquote, inappropriately. Now, the reaction in the room was... Or worse, hmm. right? It was disgusting. It was uncalled for. It was workplace harassment. It was all these things. Okay, let's agree. Let's say it was all those things. Hmm. Was it anything else? Hmm. Or is that it? Hmm. Some desperate old man's last lunge for a, for a feel. Is that what it was? Do you have any idea, those of you who call that into deep disrepute, what it means when you are a dying person to have someone so deeply alive they're within reach. Mm. You don't know what that's like. You don't know what it would do to you. You don't know the gravitational pull that life would exert upon you in a moment like this. Mm. I'm not saying the man's not responsible. I'm simply saying if you intend to be a human being through a time like this, you have to occupy all of the deeply inconvenient um, ambivalences about all this, you see? So it's the, it might seem like a stretch, but I don't think it is to go back to the home circumstance that you're asking me about and say that you begin to miss people well before they're gone. That's my deepest advice, and that you miss them out loud to them. Mm. And that you lament over the extraordinary arbitrariness that of all things that one could have died of, a global pandemic was never high on the list of anything you anticipated. Mm. And the rapidity of this thing is likely to not give you a lot of time for practicing this. So you might have to hit the ground running, as we say yeah. in English, and, and, and assume the responsibility to proceed with your dying loved one who may be terrified, may be sedated, may be intubated, that if they can't interact with you at the level of this kind of lament that you do so on their behalf as well, that you speak to them, imagining that somewhere in there, they're conscious 
or alert enough to have some kind of interaction with your your great mourning after them. Hmm. So the cause of death here is secondary, and you might have to do it from another room, right? Because the damn thing is so contagious. Hmm. Uh, whatever it takes, I would just say to people, try to remember that you are in the memory-making business right now by how you conduct yourself. It's best if you conduct yourself accordingly, understanding that the memories that will come to you, you are actually making now. And that's an ecological understanding, is it not? What would you want this piece... Like, I have a farm. What would I want this place to look like in 50 years when I'm not here anymore, when it's in somebody else's hands? Well, whatever my answer is, however I act today is ultimately my answer. It's the same. Yeah, I'm crafting experiences of an agricultural place that I'm not going to have right. by how I conduct myself. Yeah, It's the same. You you simply behave intergenerationally, but not just forward. So part of your behavior intergenerationally hmm. is a regard for the, those who've preceded you, that you're somewhere in between, that you're the conduit before, between the people who've died and the people who are not dead yet, hmm. right? And they're finding their way towards each other through how you conduct yourself through what you find important and insignificant, through the casual things that you say and don't say, through the unintended kindnesses that you stumble into unawares that you can't really take credit for, but somehow you're the agent of. Hmm. Yeah, or as they say in the bumper stickers, those are random acts of kindness. <laughs> Man, I feel that, that what you opened up here is a space for a whole not even a, 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 another podcast, but like another series or another, maybe that's what the Orphan Wisdom School will do. <laughs> if you go and, and study, or, or I don't know if study is the proper word, but... Oh, it's a good beginning. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah, the, that, that's, that's it's, it's a nice thing that I'm recording this. I can go home and listen to that again and, and meditate over it for a few hours. <sighs> All right, uh, we're, we're nearing the end um, of this chat. <laughs> Do you really mean that? <laughs> well, we're nearing the end, and, and I'd like to see if we can maybe take that as a cue to passing the threshold into the other side for a moment. Okay. And um, this question begins with a story. Okay. And the story goes something like this. Mm. I was at home, um, and I was in my living room. I was watching the TV when I suddenly hear a noise coming from the bookcase. And so I turn mm. and look, and a book has fallen out of the bookcase and fallen onto the floor. Mm -hmm. And I don't think much of it, but I go and, and pick it up and replace it, thinking that probably <laughs> it, it wasn't in there all the way, or I don't know. <laughs> right. I didn't think much of it. Right. A few days go by, um, and it happens again. I'm, I'm in the living room, and there's a noise from the bookcase, and another book is on the floor suddenly. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't see them coming out of the book. I just react when the noise of them hitting the ground occurs. Right. So I go over, and I notice also there's a smell, a very particular smell in the room mm -hmm. that has never been there before and never after. It's a sort of a electric fire smell, like a metally yes. electric... Ozone, kind of? 
I don't know what ozone smells like, but it's... Uh, like lightning. Yeah, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. a good characterization. Mm-hmm. So, but I still don't think... Like, my mind is not going too crazy over this yet. I'm like thinking, they, the books fell out, big deal. I'm moving on with my life. <laughs> you are hard to impress, mister. Well, okay. it's, that's because I have a third example here. So I'm, I'm, okay. I'm going to get impressed before the end of the story. Okay. Um, so two or three days go by and... Um, our son walks into the room, headed towards his room, which you have to go past the living room to get to his room, when he mm. hears a really, really loud thump, mm. much louder than what I had heard. And he gets really startled and turns around. And now another book has fallen out of the bookcase. Now, our bookcase has, I don't know, 100 books or something, and they range in size. Some are really light and small, and some are mm. bigger. Mm-hmm. Now the book that has that is now on the floor in our mm-hmm. living room is the biggest book in the bookcase. Mm-hmm. Um, to be precise, it's the law book, the Swedish law book that my wife used when she was studying so- sociology. Okay. Um, and this huge thing is on the floor. Um, now, by now I'm impressed, but I don't know what to do with this information. I'm like. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking to myself, trying to, like, there's no language for it that I know, and there's no, there's no way you can go, there's no hotline you can call. Um, so with all of this, <laughs> I'd like to ask if you've had some similar experience in your life, maybe some event that could be a whisper from the other side. And if so, what do you make of it? Okay. Well, the first thing you should have done is called Max von Sydow, because he's been there. Do you know who Max von Sydow is? Yes, he just passed away, I think, recently. The Swedish actor. Did he? Yeah. Exactly. And of course, he was in The Exorcist, and he was the guy who was contending with all these things. Yeah. So he, he would have been able to help you, especially from the other side now. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you could speak to him in his native tongue. It would have been amazing. But anyway, <laughs> apparently you didn't do that. You've gone to the second order of reference and talked to me about it instead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so my answer, and it's I don't mean it to sound glib at all, is of course I've had experiences that are in some fashion or they're similar to what you described. Mine are border on the routine. They're sometimes not, quote, spectacular. You know, when the powers that be, and I, I don't pretend to know the cause of these things or the architecture of them, but when the powers that be resort to defying the laws of physics and gravity in order to get in touch with us. Hmm. It's not a comment about them. (laughs) Okay. It's a comment about how difficult it is to reach us. Hmm. That we are only impressed by parlor tricks. You see, rather than by a a case properly made called, uh, I don't know, whales beaching themselves or whatever it is, you see. Um, so, so I, you know, I think that the, the natural order of things, let me just use that as an evocation, which includes gravity and physics and chemistry and the change of seasons and, you know, all the things that we would mean by the word natural. Hmm. I'm not sure we should include ourselves in that category, <laughs> but all the things I'm referring to, all of them seem to be the deal that the makers of life has struck. In other words, I suspect they abide by exactly the same um, 
ways that things go as we do. And I think the difference between us and them is, for us, it was, you know, when we're the beneficiary of it, we call it a blessing. And when we're bitching and griping about it, we call it an affliction. Mm. <laughs> and this is why the Egon Musks of the world were ready to get us to Mars, because now dying is an affliction. When, of course, exactly what it is, is the world's um, brilliant solution to how it continues and how it, it blesses us at the same time. Mm by allowing us to be utterly alive, but not for very long. So if they abide by the same rules of the game that we do, then rather than looking for the places where all of a sudden the deal is suspended completely and shit hovers in the air, whatever it is, every time the natural order of things enunciates itself, that's when we should be looking up from our reading and regarding it as if something marvelous has just occurred and saying yes or has it been a while and this is what it took it took the sun rising one more time for me to look up from my worries and from my preoccupations and simply give myself over to the to the small scaled miracle of another chance to get it right <laughs> that's what the whole operation could be you know, they did this movie, Grief Walker, and when I was, you know, agreeing to perform in it and to play myself in it, I was out on the river that I'm looking at right now as I'm telling you this story. And the, this occurred just to my right as I'm sitting. And the guy who was making the film asked me if I had some kind of practice, you know, and he wanted to get into the arcane and everything. And I knew enough not to do that. What I did instead was I gave him a piece of a morning prayer, a sunrise prayer, which is nothing more than an acknowledgement, a willingness to be, what we say in English, gate mouth, that sort of open mouthed by the ordinariness that has come around again, mm. that I had no part in ensuring or propagating, mm. called a sunrise in this case. And I, I, I told some of it in the, in the language that's particular to where I'm sitting right now, and then translated it in a very generic sort of way into English. And that's what I'm saying now. I'm saying it's, it's in the ordinary that the blessings come. The exceptions to the ordinary are the things to be, to be regretted. Because it's, it suggests to me that the powers that be have, have come to the conclusion perhaps to their own sorrow, that the ordinariness of the marvel of our lives has been lost upon us yet again, hmm. and that we're willing to take instruction from the anomaly instead of from the ordinary. And, you know, the same thing's happening with the virus. You know? The virus seems to be an anomaly. The word anomaly comes from Greek, and it means something like not according to the law or not according to the way that's been sort of established and sorted out. And it's not that I'm saying, wouldn't it be something if a virus of this magnitude was the, quote, order of the day? I'm not advocating that at all. Hmm. I'm simply saying that the ordinariness of the marvel which is our lives is still here in the presence of the thing that is dispatching quite a few of us as you and I have been talking.
that's what I'm saying, that the presence of the coronavirus does not mean that ordinary life is not full to the brim with marvels and reasons to live. They're still there. And someday there's going to be a generation who will desperately need to know that some of us in this time of great affliction rose to the point of being able to praise again the ordinariness of our lives as the proper philosophical and spiritual response to what would seem to be undoing us. <laughs> I love that, Stephen. Thank you so much. You're but welcome. I'll still take a chance here. Since mm -hmm. this, this platform is called Campfire Stories, mm -hmm. and I'm going to close my eyes now and imagine that we're at a real campfire. And I'll, I'll ask again just to see what happens. Uh, if, if you wouldn't have a story of... Because you, you opened with saying that, of course, things like this have happened in my life. But I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing one of those occasions just for the hell of it. Oh, you mean one of the spectacular ones? Well, you choose. <laughs> but they have to include I, plates flying, uh, levitating, or... Uh, no, no, you choose. Uh, <laughs> I, well, in all, with all due respect, I just did. I just did. I told you about being out in a canoe in this river and the sun rising. Like for me, as, as mundane and uninspired as this might sound, on my better days, that will do. If for me to ask any more of this bright blue spinning world of ours than that is something like gluttony. That's all. I'm, I'm a guy with reduced expectations, you know. You could call it a battle fatigue from being at the front line of the death trade, maybe. But, but on my better days, I am willing for the natural order of things to be the miracle that in my worst days I continue to seek out. This is why I can't point to plates flying. I mean, yeah, there's been some of those things, but I mean, they scared the shit out of me, for, to be honest with you. But I, I don't seek after them. And I don't even want to put them into words now in case whoever's listening on the other side might think, oh yeah, he's drawn to this stuff. Maybe we'll send a few more. <laughs> no, I don't need any more. Really. Really. I mean, I'm glad your books are falling off and it's not my books falling off. <laughs> to, to be honest, you know. In other words... What I'm suggesting here, and I know we're coming to our conclusion now, is that if we imagine that we are entrusted with reasons to live, instead of them being hidden from us, as if life is a kind of horrific scavenger hunt, and we're supposed to live off nuts and berries and gravel and, you know... In our hardest, darkest times, it's not like that. In our hardest, darkest times, if we have nothing else, we have the nourishment that comes from an understanding that there was a time when people lived otherwise and they knew how to love the place where they lived. We don't need to envy that in them. We could imagine ourselves to be unwitting descendants of that skill. And we inherited the skill, but without the instruction. That seems to be what modern time is. We, we inherited the notion that human beings are capable of it. Without an without a instructor's manual, 
to tell us how to proceed that way. So we're getting some rather severe instruction now. Hmm. Thank you so much. I actually have one last question, if that's all right, if we have time. <laughs> Did I trick you before? <laughs> go, go ahead, it's your show. <laughs> it's actually not my question. It's a listener's question. Okay. Uh, it's a, a Campfire Stories listener. His name is Matthias Lindberg. He lives in Lund in the south of Sweden. And the question goes mm. like this. What is available... <clears throat> Sorry, I'll start that over. What is available to us now that will be gone when the pandemic is over? Uh, the memory of how it was when it came on. That will be gone. And people will be eager and keen to lose that memory. See, this is, this comes from a traumatized understanding of what prevailing means, or what, uh, not surviving, but what, what continuance of life means. I submit to you that most modern people are at some level or other traumatized people. And the nature of being traumatized is the last thing you would want to do is remember the onset of the trauma. Hmm. For to do so each and every time is to plummet you back into the traumatized time. The idea being that as long as you keep your distance from the traumatizing moment, the trauma is itself away from you. In actual fact... That's the trauma speaking, hmm. you see. So the trauma's real spell is cast upon you not in the past, but in the present. Then it's the nature of trauma to steal your present from you by warning you against the past. Hmm. And that's what's going to happen, I think, to the memory of these days when you were forced to stay inside and get to know this little place, which is getting smaller all the time, called your home and the opportunity to realize how little you actually need to surround yourself with to be an accomplished and prevailing human being is likely to be one of the first casualties of having the opportunity to get more. And I really lament that. I genuinely wish it were otherwise, but it's not clear to me that any calamity like this that we did not choose will be something that we choose to learn from. We're probably going to choose to learn how not to go through this again, hmm. instead of learning what is there offered to us by this strange and rough God. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, and for having uh, joined me at the campfire. I hope to speak to you again, and I hope that nights of grief and mystery will get on the road whenever it's supposed to get on the road and that you'll make it to my community and to all those other places that you have planned for and uh, yeah thank you so much for your time amen thank you for the grace and the honor of a well-wrought question and mercy to your house and to your people as well thank you so much amen The Campfire Podcast is brought to you by the film platform Campfire Stories. Check it out at campfire-stories.org. See you there.